Jeremiah 16 is the text for the day. Jeremiah 16. Do you know God is clear but also complex? Uh, Clear in the sense that he reveals himself, makes his ways known, but complex in light of his makeup. He's perfect in all of his perfections. Therefore, he's perfect with regard to grace, but he's also perfect with regard to judgment. And our task is to let God be God. We cannot filter out some of his characteristics because they're threatening to us. We have to let him be entirely God. In Jeremiah, we see a lot of the outpouring of the wrath of God. We cannot minimize it or dilute it. It's a little hard to understand, but it's there. So we see more today of the outpouring of the wrath of God. He's intensely gracious, but he's also intensely holy, and therefore judges unholiness. The thing about being a Christian is that we get in on the intense grace of God because the intense wrath of God has already been outpoured on the Lord Jesus for us. So there's only two options. You are a recipient of the wrath of God or of the grace of God. If you've accepted Christ as sin substitute, you are a recipient of the grace of God. See how important it is? Here we read about people who chose his wrath as opposed to his grace. Jeremiah 16, take a look. The word of the Lord also came to me. Who's the me? It's Jeremiah. Don't you find it fascinating that God would take profound, cosmic, eternal, transforming truths and deposit them uh, in the person of humans? (laughs) Jeremiah is just a human, not an angel. God uses angels. But frankly, as his communicators, people more often. Here's Jeremiah. We read about his mood swings earlier. He's given to depression. Uh, sometimes uh, even suicidal thinking. God used him. He could use us. He could use you and I. Here's the word to Jeremiah now in chapter 16, verse 2. You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. Whoa. Jeremiah uh, was under orders, purchased with a price, commissioned for service, and the commander-in-chief said, Jeremiah... You are not free to do as you choose. I've commissioned you to service. Therefore, I place this limitation on the exercise of your freedom. You shall not marry nor have children. Could you please explain what you think is behind that? Why would God put that restriction on Jeremiah? Do you have any idea? Brenda? Now, that's an interesting point of view Brenda shared. Uh, Brenda said, look, he's the weeping prophet. He cries all the time. And maybe God didn't want him to show those kinds of emotions in front of his wife. Exactly. Maybe you're right, Brenda. God didn't want a wimpy husband, right? (laughs) Good. Yes, ma'am. Very interesting. Our sister says perhaps God didn't want him to be distracted from the things of life. 
They're not bad things, but they could be distracting. Well said. Anybody, any other thoughts, Diane? Well, it says in this place. Ah. This is very interesting, and I think Diane is on something. Don't forget that phrase, in this place. It also means at this time. So here's what's going on. Yes, ma'am. Ah. Yes. Well said. Uh, judgment is coming. God is loving. And perhaps wanted to spare Jeremiah the terrible, um, grievous reality of losing a, a, a wife and children. This is good, good, good. Now, folks, look at Jeremiah was called by God not just to preach, but to live. And in Jeremiah's case, he was to live out. He was to illustrate what he preached. He had been preaching a message of impending judgment at the hands specifically of the Babylonians. And now imagine an ancient Israel, a grown man, being unmarried. People would come up to him and say, Jeremiah, what's up? What's your problem? Why are you not yet wed? And he would say, perhaps, because judgment is coming. And he would say, Israel, all those things which you have looked to to give you joy and satisfaction will be forfeited, even family. Israel, because of the uh, depravity with which you have fallen because of your idolatry, because of the seriousness of your sin and your unwillingness to repent. Israel, all that which you have considered to be normal is not going to be normal. Everything you have leaned on for satisfaction, like family, for instance, fundamentally, uh, will be forfeited. Israel, I'm remaining in this state, not only as a sermonizer, but as a living, walking illustration of the fact that judgment is coming. So the text goes on, verse 3, to say, Thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases. They'll not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky, for the beasts of the earth. Folks, that is the word of God. I cannot, like Thomas Jefferson, cut out from it what is distasteful to me. Did you know our famous president did that? He formed the Jefferson Bible, it's called. He took the Bible and a pair of scissors <laughs> and cut out from it what he thought should be in it. Literally pasted it together and formed the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was not a theist. He was a deist. He didn't have a notion of a personal personal God. Anyway, uh, we're not allowed to do that. If so, I would join with Thomas Jefferson if we were permitted, and I would say, this is too stiff. I like passages like, for God so loved the world, and, you know, and rejoice in the Lord always. And I don't know. I like stuff like that. This is tough, but here's what I'm getting at. God is clear but complex. I must take him in all of his complexity. He's intense in the outpouring of his grace. He's intense in the outpouring of his wrath. Here we see it. Now, verse 5, you see a second restriction placed upon Jeremiah. Look, for thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning 
or go to lament or to console them. When somebody suffers the loss of a loved one, we are moved. It's normal to express our condolences. We make a visit to their home oftentimes. God said, Jeremiah, you will not. Why? For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and compassion. Jeremiah, you're not permitted to join in the morning, for my judgment upon them now is coming, is inevitable, is irreversible. Verse 6, both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. You want to know what's interesting about that? Cutting oneself and shaving one's head were signs of mourning. Israel practiced those to express her grief. Interestingly, she was not permitted to ever, just as an indication of the extent to which she has rejected God. He told her something in Deuteronomy, way back, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. He said, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. Now, this is not about hairstyles. You can do whatever you want. He said, you shall not do these things for the sake of the dead. These are the very two things which Israel is now doing in the book of Jeremiah. Why did God say don't do it? Well, because these were the customs of the Canaanites surrounding Israel. They were part of their religious observances. And God said, you are sons of mine. You are to be different. I separated you out. Do not take on the customs of the people around you. Don't let them influence you. You're supposed to influence them. And years later, you find in the book of Jeremiah, part of the reason for God's judgment is that they're doing the very thing God told them not to do. I wanted you to be a separate people, and you're like everybody else. Verse 7, men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. You, Someone has lost a loved one. You go to the service to pay your respects. Thereafter, sometimes you partake in a meal together. Oftentimes, you know, the meal is provided for the family. Sometimes you join in. It might be in their household. You go. There are people gathered there. Some are crying. Some are actually laughing, not to make light of the loss, but just to remember the good days, the good times, some, some positive memories of the one who is deceased. And God said that won't happen when people die in the land in this case. Why? Well, for one thing, there'd be too many dead. You will not be able to make your house calls and show your condolences. It'd just be too many. Verse 8, moreover, you shall not go into a house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. Folks, if I could pare this down, God is saying, if I can put it in the vernacular, I mean no disrespect, God is saying the party's over. You think he might say that with regard to other nations even today? Yes. Verse 9, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. Now look at this. God now says to Jeremiah, verse 10, when you tell the people these words, they'll say to you, now God knows in advance, after Jeremiah preaches this message, by the way, how would you like to preach this message to people? 
I mean, not even the Dale Carnegie course can make that message get you to win friends and influence people. I mean, that is not a... Are you kidding me? So God says, Jeremiah, when you do this, here's what they're going to... Here's how they're going to respond. How does God know this in advance? What? He's God. That's what God do. He knows the end from the beginning. When you tell them this, they're going to say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this calamity against us? And what is our iniquity or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? You know what's going to happen? When the Babylonians assault the land from the north, when they burn and pillage and take people captive, the people, instead of repenting, are going to say, God, what is your problem? They're not going to say, what is our problem? They're going to say, why do you hold this against us? They're going to say, God, are you in a bad mood? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the divine bed this morning? We don't deserve this. What is up? You know why they think that way? Because they will have been persuaded by false teachers all along that all is well. Ezekiel records the words of these false teachers. They say to the people, peace, peace. And then God responds through Ezekiel, but there is no peace. So their religious leaders have led them astray. Everything is fine. You're fine. Everything's cool. And the political leaders have led them astray. The political leaders have said to them, well, they've lied. They said, everything's fine. It's all going to work out. We're getting better. Hold your hands together. We can fix what has been broken. We can save the world. So I know this is hard to apply today, but try your best. So the people are, be, are going to be persuaded that there is no inherent sin problem. By the way, we are just about on the verge. Perhaps we've already cr- succeeded, not in eliminating sin, but eliminating the concept of sin. Oh, we sin. But we don't call it that anymore. Do you know now we call it making mistakes? My wife and I were driving through South Carolina a couple of days ago. We were in the state capital, Columbia. It's a beautiful southern city. And it recalled, I recall that's the place where the prior governor did his governoring. Tall, good-looking guy, lovely wife, children, you know, very articulate, eloquent, looked like a Hollywood kind of a person. Apparently he'd been conducting a long-term relationship with a journalist, I believe, in Argentina, and you can get so narcissistic in your sin, he didn't even cover it up very well. He, through email communication, his wife discovered this. Well, she left him and took the boys, and it's just a terrible tragedy. He stands up in front of the cameras. He called a news conference because, you know, people like this want to get an offense going real quick. So you face the cameras, and you, you look repentant. But you're not repentant. You're just sorry you got caught. And so he, and i tell you how I know this. Because he simply said, I made a mistake. I've hurt people. I've made a terrible, serious mistake. Now, hang on just a second. I'm not criticizing him because I'm a human just like him. Don't misunderstand. In fact, out of my concern for him, I wish he didn't minimize what he did. And I'll tell you why. You don't need forgiveness for making a mistake. You need forgiveness for sin. If all you did was to make a mistake, you don't need Jesus. Do you know Jesus didn't come into the world to die on the cross for mistake makers? Mistake-making doesn't keep you out of heaven. It's rebellion against God that keeps you out of heaven. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not those who make bad decisions. 
It's not a sin to make bad decisions. That just means you're stupid. (laughs) It's no crime against God to be stupid. It is a crime against God to rebel against God. Jesus came to save us from our rebellion, sin, iniquity, transgression. Today we don't do that. We just, you know, we make we make mistakes. Not only do we sin today, do you know what we flaunt it? It's kind of a different day. Today, I don't think there's more sin today, but there's more institutionalized sin. I mean, it is there. For instance, gay pride parade. Now you can parade. Planned Parenthood building. I mean, there it is in your face. It's kind of a little, like Romans, not only sitting but giving hearty approval to those who do. Don't misunderstand. I am one who sins. I'm not judging or looking down on anyone. It's on the opposite. You've got to call it what it is so that Jesus can forgive you yet. <laughs> I don't have a, a decision-making problem or a mistake-making problem. I'm in rebellion against God. I want to do my own thing. But here's another thing the world does. Distracts you from the real problem. The real problem is not outside of you. It's inside of you. And the proof is wherever you go, you keep doing it. doesn't matter what the environment. But today the environment is the huge distraction. So people are telling you the problem with the world is pollution out there. Oh, no. It's pollution in here. I struggle with sin in thought, word, and deed on the inside. So do you. It's not the environment. I'm in favor of a sweet-smelling, cleaned-up environment. That's really cool, but that isn't the fundamental human problem. For crying, That's the symptom of the problem. Yesterday, I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We deposited our son, 82nd Airborne. In a, we're in the PX and commissary, and as we're checking out, they have these little green bags. You know, you can see them in stores now. You buy them for 99 cents. and Instead of using disposable bags or making them use paper and plastic, you use your little bag. You know how that is? So a big old sign, go green and save the world. <laughs> They're even getting airborne guys to carry these stupid little green. Let me tell you something. Green bags are not going to save the world. Amen. They're taking our vernacular, save the world. <laughs> See, Why don't you just say use green bags and be a good steward of the earth's resources? Okay, why do you have to make a theological statement? And I'll tell you why. Because it's an attempt to distract us from our real malady, which is a polluted lifestyle, mine and yours. I'm not looking down on anyone. I'm just telling you what our problem is. By the way, it's no problem if you have a Savior. He came to die for that pollution. That's why he wants us to accept what he's done for us. But okay. So they're going to say to you in that day, Jeremiah, what is wrong with God? There's nothing wrong with us. Well, then God says, verse 11, this is what you say to them. Say it's because your forefathers have forsaken me. Tell them it goes deep. It's multi-generational. It's not new. I'm not impulsive. I'm not having a bad day. I've been observing your inclination to sin for generations. Your forefathers followed other gods. They served them. They bowed down to them. But me, they've forsaken. They haven't kept my law. Is God judging them because of what their daddies and granddaddies did? No. Look at the next verse. You too have done evil. You too have done evil. Not only that, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land. It's like a slingshot. That's the words behind the Hebrew. 
He's like, Israel, you're going to be like a stone in the sling, my divine slingshot. Boom! I'm going to sling you out of the land, into the land which you've not known, neither you nor your fathers. There you will serve other gods day and night, for I'll grant you no favor. The Babylonians came, modern-day Iraq. Uh, Israel was carried off into bondage there for 70 years. I want to tell you something. The first 13 verses tell us about the intense wrath of God. Now we should stop and take a breath. You know why? I think God stops. Don't look at the Bible here for a second. I think he stops and changes the direction now for just a little bit in the next two verses. Because remember, God wants us to know he's multifaceted. He's clear, but don't make him simple. He's loving and he's gracious, but he's also holy and will judge sin. We've gotten a picture of the extent to which he will judge unrepented sin in the first 13 verses. But now get a picture of his grace. Would you please? Verse 14. Therefore, behold, days are coming. Is that that's a time indicator? Is it a reference to past, present or future? Right. So the first 13 verses are about Israel's immediate future. Now God says, let me give you a view of what's to come in the future. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, wait a second. That is a reference to God's deliverance of the Jews from bondage in Egypt. That's a reference to the exodus from Egypt. And the exodus is one of the premier events in Jewish history. Today, it is referenced perhaps more than anything else in Judaism. We have whole holidays to celebrate the great deliverance with which God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's the first exodus. God said there's going to come a day when you won't be speaking about that exodus so much because there's going to be one that's even more glorious than that first one. Here's the second one. But as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel, not from Egypt, but from the land of the north. It's another exodus which you will praise me for. The first one has taken place. It was a great deliverance. This is one to come that's even greater. I will deliver you. There will be an exodus from the land of the north. Now, what is the land of the north in keeping with the context? It's Babylon or modern-day Iraq. So God is saying this. You're going. Jeremiah, it's irreversible. Don't weep for these people anymore. My judgment is good. It is justifiable. They've crossed the line. They're going. But 70 years later, they're coming back. And that's how long the Babylonian captivity lasted. And God indeed did bring these people back to the land. What a great deliverance. What a great exodus. A, a beaten up, reduced, weakened, decimated people group. How do they get out from under the grasp of the great Babylonian empire? Verse 15, God said, I'm going to do it. That's how they get out. Days will coming when there will be the second exodus. But I want you to notice something else. God says he's going to bring them up not just from the land of the north, but from where else? All the countries. Can I tell you something? That has not yet happened. It happened to a certain extent in May of 1948. That's the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel. And Jews from all over the world after the Holocaust went to Israel to establish that place. So you have Jews from Yemen, Jews from Russia, Jews from Ireland, Jews from Texas <laughs> living there. 
in the Holy Land, even New York Jews. Everybody, everybody so, but that's just a foreshadowing of a far greater day yet to come at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when we will sing, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Dear folks, that's not Rome. That's not Mecca. That's called Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Buckle up. The best is yet to come. Now, why do I belabor this point once again? Because God does. Verse 15, the end. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. (coughs) Folks, listen to me. I'm not just doing this because I'm a Jewish guy. I'm doing it because I'm a Bible guy. And you ought to be Bible men and women. And you are. I'm not making a political statement. I cannot adjudicate the political conflict in the Middle East. That's not me. I just want us to be biblical. But let others make political decisions. I want us to be biblical. Verse 15 is pretty clear to me. For I will. That's God declaring what he's going to do, right? doesn't say a thing about what he wants Israel to do. It does not say I will if they will. I will restore them to their own land, which I gave. Whose land is it? God's. That means it's his to give to whoever he chooses to give it to. So I need to share something with you. If you're wrong about Israel, you're going to be wrong about just about everything else. Don't be wrong about Israel. It's not about Israel. It's about the character of God manifested through a most undeserving people. I know of the grace of God because of verses like that. I know of the wrath of God because of chapters like this. I watch the course of God's dealings with Israel and I figure out what God is like with reference to me. If you're wrong about Israel, you're going to be wrong about just about everything else. And the church is increasingly becoming wrong about Israel. So there are prominent theologians, book writers, and pastors who are now saying because of Israel's sin, they no longer have a divine right to that land. I buy part A, Israel's sin, not part B, forfeiture of the land. Why? Because the land was given without condition. Genesis chapter 12, I'll give you one verse, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I shall give this land. Boom. If you read that, it's called the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants or the Abrahamic covenant. I dare you to find anything but I will statements in it. It does not say I will if they will. It says I will flat out because I'm gracious. You know why that's so important to get? That's how God transacted his covenant with you if you're a saved person. He didn't say to you, I will save you if you will live up to it. I will save you if you will change your life. He didn't say that because he knows we can't. He said, I will save you if you will only accept my salvation. The Abrahamic covenant is the parallel to your covenant with God. If God has withdrawn, therefore, the promise of land to Israel because of her sin, I want to know when he's going to withdraw the promise of your entrance into your promised land because of your sin. And you do plenty of it, don't you? 
The basis of assurance of your entry into your heavenly promised land is God's dealings with Israel. Now I want to show you something else. It's in Psalm 105, and I memorized a few of these verses, 8 to 11. I'll tell you why I memorized it. One, um, I'm getting older, and <laughs> as you get older, you forget stuff. So they say if you exercise your brain, you know you kind of keep it in, in shape. So I thought I'll memorize Scripture. The second, uh, it gives me something to think about instead of thinking about stuff that makes me depressed and worry. You, know, you want to transform your mind. Uh, third, uh, you have the Word of God always available so that if someone takes away a, our Bibles, I'm not worried about it. I'm memorizing it as much as I could. And I guess the fourth reason is I memorize because I feel like it might impress you. Yeah? Okay. So here's the deal. Listen, Psalm 105, 8 to 11. He, that's God, has remembered his covenant Forever. That's a big word. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. You know how much a thousand generations is? A lot. It's a metaphor for it ain't going to end. The covenant which he made with, please note the specificity of the names with which God made the covenant. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel as and notice what kind of covenant everlasting covenant saying to you, I will. There's another divine. I will. I will give notice how specific the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. If you are not right about God's irreversible, gracious plan and provision for Israel, you'll be wrong about God and your own salvation. You're going to miss the whole point. Am I saying you should support everything the Israeli government does? I'm not saying that. The Israeli government is no different than ours or any other government. It's just a secular institution. I'm only saying you should support what the Bible says about Israel. That's all I'm saying. Why do I have to say it? Because increasingly church people are missing it. And I'll tell you how what's happening. It's quite, quite dangerous. Church people, pardon the expression, particularly younger ones, are really, really getting on board with regard to taking the gospel to Muslim people, Arab people, Middle Eastern people, for which I say... Praise the Lord. Thank God for you. Wonderful. However, in the process of embracing Palestinian people, Arab people, Muslim people, church people are also coming back with their political agenda. So they went loving Muslim and Arab people. Thank God. You should. But now they come back with less love for Israel. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. So, Jewish evangelism is drying up. Whole denominations are abandoning taking the gospel to Jews. Big churches are 
siphoning out of their budgets the support of missionaries who take the gospel to Jews. Churches are ceasing to have speakers come in who speak about Israel and the Jewish people. Now, I'm concerned about what's happening outside the church, but I sort of feel like God can handle that. My real concern, as it ought to be yours, is is us staying straight and biblical. You know when we talk about revival in the land? I always I stumble over that. Unsafe people don't need revival. They need to be saved first. Revival is for us. See, in order to be revived, you've got to be vived first, right? <laughs> revived from what? So can you see God's focus? Of it. Don't worry about the unsafe people out there. God can handle them. It's us going astray. Apostasy is a falling away from truth, meaning you had truth and you don't have it any longer. So I'm deeply, because deep, there's a dangerous tendency, something called replacement theology. you sure God gave the land to the Jews, but the Jews abandoned God and therefore he withdrew the land promises. Therefore, we evangelicals should stop supporting Israel. You have no idea how dangerous that is. Look, let me tell you something. Two major covenants in the Old Testament. Two major. I mentioned the first, Abrahamic covenant. That's an I will covenant. That's not an I will if you will. That's an unconditional covenant. Here's land. Here's blessing. And what's more, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who... Be careful not to be on Israel's side. Be on God's side. I will bless those who bless thee. I will curse those who curse thee. By the way, have you run into a Babylonian lately? What happened to the empire? But puny little Jews like me are still around. What's the deal? What does that testify to? Our strength? No! The grace of God. Okay, so you have the Abrahamic covenant. That's an unconditional covenant. God said, here's the land. Later, another one came through Moses. So it's called the Mosaic covenant. took place on Mount Sinai, remember? Tell people to hang out. Don't let them come up, Moses. You come up. Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's my moral character inscribed on tablets of stone. Ten commandments, the basis of morality and ethics for the world. And God said, Moses, tell the people this. I'll bless you if you obey these. I'll curse you if you disobey. The blessings of obedience, the cursing of disobedience. So God essentially says, Moses, tell them, if they live by these commandments, now they will not only have the land, but they will enjoy being in it. Abrahamic covenant, here's the land, free. Enjoyment of the land, obey. Has Israel ever in its history to date had full enjoyment of the land of Canaan? No stinking way. It's a fortress mentality. Go there. Bomb shelters, hostile enemies, it is not good. The parallel is to us. Your salvation is simply an I will statement. Call upon me and I will answer you. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. If you confess with your tongue and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Savior, you shall... I mean, it's all I will... You didn't do anything about Jesus is the author and finisher of our salvation. You know this kind of... That's an I will statement. However, then God gives us the rest of Scripture to say, now my son, now my daughter, I care how you live. I didn't just save you from sin. I saved you from the world. 
unto me. Come into my family and live this way. I'm your dad. I care. If you don't live by my strictures, you don't cease being my child, but you cease enjoying the benefits of being my child. The most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. It's a saved person living like the devil. So listen to me. You've got to get the Old Testament covenants right so you can be right about your salvation. Abrahamic covenant, no condition. Here's land. Parallel is new covenant. Here's your way to the promised land. No condition. Mosaic covenant. You will not enjoy the fruit of your salvation unless you obey. That's the parallel to us as New Testament, New Covenant people. You will not fully enjoy the blessings of your salvation unless you do things the Father's way. See it? Do you forfeit salvation when you disobey? No. You forfeit the joy of your salvation. Now look, a couple wrote an email uh, to Brother John, and my name was on it as well. And it was a very, I think, well-constructed email with a sad message in it for sure, but well done. And this couple said, we must withdraw our membership from Sagemont Church. We can no longer be part of a church that teaches uh, that folks uh, have their salvation eternally and can never forfeit it. And then they said, we actually heard uh, uh, Brother Stewart on a Wednesday night make the statement, once saved, always saved. And this simply can't be the case because though salvation is a precious gift, like any other gift, you can refuse it and walk away from it. Therefore, we can't be part of a church whose pastors teach that which is false. He said, here's the deal. I actually respect uh, the, the, the couple uh, for their tact. It was not an attack or anything like that. They shared their honest and authentic perspective. And they are dead wrong. Dead wrong about salvation. Listen to me. When we talk about the gift of salvation... Be careful about making illustrations go too far. If you give me, a a lady came in earlier and gave me this gift. It's a candy bar. You're not getting any. I'm not sharing. I just got to tell you, I mean, this is like dark and mint. Forget it. I just, uh, no, I'm sorry, Brenda. You can want it all you want. You're not going to get it. Forget it. Keep your hands off. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the gift. They gave it to me. But listen to me. This, I don't become this gift. This gift is still separate from my personhood. I can give this gift away. That's where you want to be careful when you say gift of salvation. Listen, when you get saved, you know what you get? Someone in the last class put it this way. You get God's DNA. Listen to me. When you're born biologically, you get your parents' DNA. You may walk away from them for sure in rebellion later in life. You cease to therefore enjoy family parental benefits, but you don't cease to have parents and be their child. I know this because those of you with those rebellious kids grieve over them. There's still a connection, is there not? So too in the born-again sense. I don't get the gift of salvation like it's tacked on to me externally. It's called being reborn, renewed, regenerated. When true salvation takes root in a person's life, they become entirely new. They're born anew. They're a new creation. There's nothing to give back. You have been changed and transformed. The people who think you can lose your salvation don't get it. They think it's just something tacked on to you. Oh, no. It's something that redefines your very essence. 
totally different, missing the point. And if they only tracked God's redemptive plan first with Israel, they would get it. The Abrahamic covenant, no condition. It's just the enjoyment of the land that's contingent on obedience. They never forfeited the right to the land. You will never forfeit your, your darn tootin'. Once truly saved, always saved. But if you're a disobedient saved one, you don't enjoy it. Listen to me, folks. That is not a Baptist point of view. Now, here's the one thing I think in the email that I most objective to, objected to. The lady um, attributed this thinking to Baptist something or other. Listen, my dear friends. I was not born in a Baptist church. I'm a Jew. You cannot dismiss this quite so easily. That's what Baptists think. I don't care about people being Baptists. I'm not a card-carrying Baptist. I care about people knowing the Bible. Understand. Listen, First John. I write these things to you who believe. You didn't earn anything. You believe in what? In the Son of God. Not in your merits, in His. I write this thing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's new life. It's new life. You can fail to appreciate it. You can squander the full benefit of it, but you never cease to be connected to the dad. I want to ask you a question. Are you a better parent than Almighty God? At the worst behavior on the part of your kids, are you done being their dad or mom? Then how dare you think God is ever done with us, even when we spit in his face? Secondly, when someone walks away from salvation, they have just betrayed they've never been saved. My words? Baptist words? No. First John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But as it is, they went out from us in order that it might be shown that they were not really of us. So this person who used to be hanging out with Christians, who used to be a Christian, but now no longer is, that person didn't lose salvation because the very mark of salvation is you remain saved. I didn't say at the top of your game all the time, I sin, you sin, well, I have my bad days, you, you have your bad days. But there's always an inclination to grieve, to be miserable, to be broken, to turn back to God, to eventually seek his pardon once again. It's the staying power of the one who professes Christ that is the evidence of the fact that that one truly knows Christ. When there's no staying power, that one didn't lose a thing. That one shows evidence that salvation never took root in their life. Bad theology. Bad theology. I don't care about Baptist stuff. What does the Bible say? You misrepresent the Savior. If you misunderstand the nature of the totality of salvation, Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. 
God did a transformational work in your life. He didn't give you a gift that doesn't enter in and change you on the inside. He renewed you and washed you in the power of his Holy Spirit. You can squander the benefits thereof, but never the reality thereof. It's a new work born again. Now, I'll tell you how I get all this. Look at the Abrahamic covenant. Look at the Mosaic covenant. See how God played out his response to Israel, and you'll see how he responds to you. He sent Israel into captivity to discipline her with a view towards bringing her back, not to destroy her. He subjects his people, you and me, to discipline to bring us back to him in repentance, walking in the center of his will, but never, ever to get rid of us, never, ever to destroy us. You can turn your back on God, but if you're his kid, he never, ever, ever, ever lose sight of you. He weeps just like you do when you have a wayward child. And as soon as you see that wayward child from afar, what do you say to the others? Party time. Now, how can you do that and think less of God? How can you think that when one God of, one of God's kids chooses to walk away from salvation, the father's going to let him go? Do you let your kid go? Are you a better parent than God? So once again, folks, it isn't about supporting the Israeli government and all that other kind of stuff. I'm not into government stuff. It's about supporting the biblical perspective. If you're wrong about how God responded to Israel, you'll be shaky about his response to you. And if you're wrong about how to respond to Israel, you can be on the wrong side. God said, I'll bless those who bless thee, curse those who curse thee. Let's take the gospel to every people group on the earth, but don't forget the Jews. You know why people are forgetting the Jews? Because they're hard to reach. Too bad. Jesus came for them. We must go to them as well. Not just them. I didn't say that. I just said, let's not leave them out. Okay. It, has it cooled off in here? Okay, Lord Jesus, it's, it's a... Thank you for the environment you've given us uh, to gather together freely, at least for now. And in your name... Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us out of the world. Please give us biblical mooring points. God, I'm fearful today. We're reading so much about the Bible, not the Bible. I don't want to read the next series on future things when I could read the book of Revelation. Oh, man. I really do pray you would help us to be more critical thinkers. Oh, God. Take our marching orders from Scripture. Not church tradition, denominational perspectives, and all that other kind of stuff. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you that we can be so proud of you because you're intensely holy. Our God is so good, so good. Thank you for your will, which is good, acceptable, and perfect as it concerns us as individuals, as it concerns the world, as it concerns the nations of the world. Oh, God, thank you. You're seated on the throne. Thank you for declaring the end from the beginning, victory in Jesus. Thank you for letting us share in it. In your name we pray. Amen. Blessings to you. See you next week. And you can't have this chocolate. He is now in North Carolina. <laughs>